Washed Up Emo sponsors New Belgium Brewing are celebrating their 30th anniversary as a company. To celebrate, they're releasing Wild Ride Amber IPA, a happy tribute to their iconic fat tire. Even better, New Belgium Brewing are giving away bikes and gear all year. Find out more information by visiting newbelgium.com. Do you ever wonder if your favorite band is emo? Tired of being in the same conversation with friends? Not knowing if you're listening to post-hardcore, screamo, emo revival, emo emo violence, even ska. We're We're here here to to help. help. The Emo Council is here staffed and ready for any question you may have. Hey, Emo Council, just wondering if Green Day was considered an emo band. Thanks. Green Day is not an emo band. Okay. From the creators of Washed Up Emo, isthisbandemo.com offers the definitive answer to the only important question of your day. Hey, is this been emo? Forgive me for running off the fine the one day Welcome to the Washed Up Email Podcast, sponsored by Epitaph Records and Refuse's latest album, Freedom, which is available now. So it's their first album in 17 years, guys, and it's a follow-up to their epic and iconic album, The Shape of Punk to Come, every new metal band's favorite hardcore record. So I saw Refuse back in 98, and no way did I expect to see this victory lap that they took a few years ago. It was fantastic. So it's only fitting that they take this energy and uh, make a new album and tour for everybody. Uh, so, so happy to have them back. Um, speaking of touring, they're on tour with Faith No More, and uh, you can go check them out through August 7th, 2015. So once again, thanks to Epitaph Records, our sponsor. Go listen to stream, download the new Refused album, Freedom. Today on the podcast, we welcome Mike Fellamley from the band Smoking Popes. We talk about growing up in the burbs of Chicago in the late 80s and 90s, playing with Alkaline Trio and his new band, The Bigger Empty. Thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I I definitely want to talk about a lot of stuff today. Um, And the first thing is I think, you know, you are back with the Smoking Pope's first time since 1998, which is a long-ass time ago. Um, Yeah. How does that feel? What are the what are the thoughts? You've got some shows coming up, which is pretty awesome. Uh, uh, just kind of, what are your initial thoughts of kind of being back into the fold? I'd say it, it feels pretty awesome. Um, we first, uh, I started playing with them again. It was somewhat engineered by Rob Kellenberger, um, who you probably know. He was the drummer for Slapstick, and then played with the Popes for a little while when they got back together um, because there, there was a, a sound guy from Elgin, Illinois named John Emerson. Uh, He he was from like the early days and like the early nineties in the Elgin scene where a lot of, a lot of bands came from and he did sound at all these shows. He did a lot of sound at Fireside uh, and he had passed away and he had done a number of Pope shows and a lot of the other bands I played in and he, he passed away and didn't have life insurance. So his family was hurting. So we, 
Rob was helping arrange a, a benefit show for John. And so Rob called me and he said, I think for this show, it'd be cool if you played with the Popes. Would you be into it? And I said, sure. And then he talked to Josh and Josh was on board and Matt and Eli were as well. So we just, we had like three practices and then played a show. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Was it, uh, was it across, uh, stuff that you only played on or was it across the catalog itself? Yeah, we've only played, and since I've been back, we've played a number of shows. It was funny because I spoke to Josh. It was about 12 days before the John Emerson show. And then Josh mentioned, oh, by the way, we have these shows with Face to Face coming up, which is three nights. And I'm like, when is that? And that happened to be like seven days away from when I talked to Josh. Uh, so we had like seven days to get ready for the face to face shows that we played. Wow. And at those shows we played, um, our first three albums and a bunch of the seven inch stuff. It's like the first night we played some seven inches and get fired. And the second night we played born to quit. And the third night we played most of destination failure, like all of it that we could remember how to play. Yeah. Was it like, uh, were you looking at YouTube videos and being like, how did, what did we do again? <laughs> well, I had a, for me, it was mostly about getting into physical shape because outside of just drumming on, I've drummed on some random projects here and there, but I haven't done like serious drumming pretty much since I was out of like Duval which was shortly after Alkaline Trio. Mm -hmm. So it's been since like 2002 or 2003 since I've really been a drummer. So I had like six days to get ready. So I would go down, put headphones on and play along to those albums, like back to back to back and just about pass out and puke every day. <laughs> and I made it through the shows, but barely. I almost, I almost threw up a couple times. Wow especially playing like get, get fired along with the seven inches. I was like 17, 18 years old when we recorded those and like hopped up on Mountain Dew. See, that's what and we're now, talking, right? The washed up part. Yeah. You're like, I'm yeah. washed up now. I, I need to practice. I need to stretch. I need to, I need to have a, I need to have a nap. Yeah. I have to breathe much more deeply now when I'm playing like, so I don't pass out cause I'm 40, not 17. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> um, like I haven't gotten fat or anything, but like, man, the cardio, it's not the same as when you're 18 years old, when you're 40. I'll tell you that. <laughs> uh, so other, you know, that, uh, doing those shows, um, were there any other sort of you know, thoughts? It was like, okay, was it, was it initially, I'm just going to do those shows and then it was, okay, now I'm going to do more or, uh, was it always the plan to kind of just keep continuing with it? I think it was initially, initially I was like, okay, I'll do this John Emerson show. And then, well, we had the face to face shows too. And I'm like, okay, well, those sound fun. Let's do those. And then we got offered to open for the replacements in Chicago for two nights. And they're one of my all time favorite bands. They were my favorite band from when I was like 10 years old to probably 25. So you're not, I'm not going to turn that down. Yeah. And then, you know, we've been playing, like the shows have been great. And the funny thing about not being washed up, I think 
like as a live band now, I think we're better than we were in the nineties. So that part of it, like just the playing has been really fun. So we're like, yeah, let's just keep on going and see what happens. I don't think, you know, we're not going to do any hardcore touring or anything, but it's fun to just rock and play some shows. So we'll probably just keep on doing that for a while. That's great. I mean, just to be able to feel that you guys are better. I mean, there's been bands that I've seen uh, reunion tours and we won't name which ones, but there's ones that I see. I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. Those songs are dated and this was a chore for you. And then other ones, I feel the same way. It's wow. This band got better. Uh, this band, you know, deserved this next time, this, 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 this round or this tour or even just one show. Um, so it's, it's great to hear you guys feel that. And again, treating it like we're going to have fun with it instead of, uh, it's a, it's a chore. Yeah. That's what we've all, like, we've all sat down and talked a couple of times and are like, okay, well, mutually we're all having a lot of fun playing together again. And we just figured as long as it's fun, let's just keep, keep going. Yeah. And then if, if it's not fun, we won't do it. Cause it's not like there's a whole lot of money involved. You know, it's not for money. We're not making a lot of money and don't intend to make a lot of money. It's just fun to rock and the shows have been good. And there are a lot of fans that seem to really appreciate it. So everybody's having fun. So let's keep going. That's great. Um, I'd love to talk about Chicago. Um, so many great bands from there. Um, especially from the nineties, which is what my focus yeah. is. Um, talk about, I guess, even if it was obviously the late eighties, you're a little, there's a few uh, years old, older than me. So you were probably catching some of the late eighties, uh, early nineties stuff. Talk about Chicago, uh, bands, time, the experiences that you had early on going to shows. So early on, it was a little bit unique because I, I grew up in a town called Crystal Lake, which is about 50 miles from Chicago. So it's, it, you could barely consider it a suburb. I, some people consider it a suburb, some don't. So I, I was in Crystal Lake and then nearby was Elgin. And both of those towns in the early nineties, I would say had just really exceptional punk scenes. And, you know, we would be playing shows, you know, a lot of my earliest memories of shows are just playing in people's basements or playing in garages. And we would have, it seemed like 500 people, but it was probably like a hundred people, 150 people in garages. A lot of the shows took place at, um, Glenn Porter, who was the original drummer for Alkaline Trio. Mm -hmm. Glenn and I went to like junior high and high school together and, he was in a number of bands in the early nineties. I was in a couple bands before the Popes and then in the Popes, we probably played Glenn's garage like four or five times at least in other people's garages in Crystal Lake. And that's probably like 1989 to like 92 era there. And then around like 92, 93, we started becoming friends with some guys in Elgin, which ended up being like, you know, Rob Kellenberger and his bands and Dan Andriano and, and his bands, which were like slapstick. Uh, Dan was in a band called flowers for a while that we played with out there. Um, 
and, you know, slapstick kind of turned into the Broadway's and turned into the honor system and turned into the alkaline trio partially. So from those two little towns up in the Northwest, you know, a ton of big Chicago punk bands came from that tiny little scene, which is really cool. That is really cool. How, how did you get records? Was it mail order? Was there a local shop? Was there like a kid, like an older, you know, old, old, older person that brought, brought him back from the city or? We did some, like a lot of mail order. There were a couple of decent record stores. Um, I have a brother who's, he's not a lot older than me, he's a year and a half older, but he worked at a Rose Records for a little while. So like he, he could, he was like a manager or assistant manager, so he could order in like cool records into the store. A lot of my early discoveries, this was even before I lived in Illinois, when I lived in Ohio, I would, I was a skater and I subscribed to Thrasher magazine. So I would look through the pages of Thrasher magazine and look at like the full page albums, full page ads for records coming out. And this had to be, I think like 1986 in some, a little town called like Middletown, Ohio. I think that's where this was. There was like the town mall. And they had a record store there, which in 1986 had an alternative section. So they were way ahead of their time. They must have had a couple of cool older guys that worked there. So one of the first records I bought was the replacements, Pleased to Meet Me. Saw it in Thrasher. I went to the record store there. They had it. I bought it. Next one was The Descendants, um, Liveage. Went in there and they had it and I bought it. So like... A lot of it, I got really lucky that there was a cool record store at the town mall in Ohio. And what would have happened if uh, the, uh, you know, it's funny how many people have mentioned Maximum Rock and Roll and and Thrasher. Uh, Yeah. It's almost like whoever was the person that decided to do the Thrasher full page and whatever that boss was that yelled at them, you couldn't really do the, you know, the, 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 uh, wait a minute, how many people saw it in Thrasher? You know, you just went to the store and got it. And then even more that the store had it like that's yeah. even crazier that you, you could have totally gone there and it would have been out. It wouldn't maybe wasn't there. And then you wouldn't have gotten the replacements record. I mean, it was that there's those moments back then that the younger people are probably rolling their eyes uh, of just that, <laughs> those, uh, those chances where you could have turned and then, I don't know, a, I don't know, dumb like techno record. Uh, you could have got that, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're you're off somewhere else. So there's those times that I think are I find really interesting. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's like, especially when I must have been like 10 or 11 years old, and it's like a real pivotal time. Like what music you get into then between like 10 and 13, I think is pretty critical on how your musical taste is going to develop. So yeah, if they wouldn't have had. Uh, the replacements record there, I might have ended up buying like, you know, there was like a lot of hair bands at the time. So I might have bought the new Rat album rather than the replacements album. And, yeah. You know, maybe I'd be a, a cock rocker now. <laughs> the, I'd be on the Washed Up Cock Rocker um, podcast. <laughs> which we can get you in touch with them. I'm sure I can find it. I'm sure I can find it. <laughs> hey, man, you want to talk about the Slaughter record? Um so other parts about, you know, Chicago, I mean, when did, did you draw, when did you start going to shows in Chicago or did you stick around where you guys were? Cause it was about an hour out. So it was definitely a hike to get into the city. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I stuck around and like being a little suburban kid, I was a little bit intimidated by the city. Um, I didn't really start going to shows there until we started playing shows down there. And we, you know, the first Pope shows, there was a punk club, I think it was called like Wrigley Side. And we had a few good shows with like uh, No Empathy which is Mark from Johan's Face Records. That's his band. Like I know we played with No Empathy and the Bull Evils a couple times in the early 90s in, in the city. But other than like playing shows downtown, I didn't go down to a lot of shows there unless I was playing. Because mm-hmm. it was, I mean, it's with the traffic, it's like an hour and a half to two hours sometimes to get in there. Yeah. Um, what were some of the, you know, when the, when the Popes were playing, what were some bands that you maybe looked up to or even peers? Were there ones that you were excited about either playing with, or was there any, you know, good memories or like, holy shit, we're going to play with Peg Boy or something like that? Uh, a real big one early on for us, there was a kind of a legendary punk club in, uh, I think it was Elmhurst, Illinois called McGregor's. And it was basically like an Irish bar, but they did all ages shows on Sundays. And we got on a bill there with Screeching Weasel, which to us was huge because they were like the big punk band from Chicago at the time. You know, every time they would play McGregor's, they would sell it out and they'd be turning away a hundred people at the door. So I think early on, I don't think they had a huge influence on us musically, I don't think we sounded a whole lot like them, but I know that, like, you know, we wanted to play on the bill with Screeching Weasel, and then, like, we wanted to do what they were doing. Like, to us, like, wow, they're selling out McGregor's. That's awesome. Wouldn't it be crazy if we could sell out McGregor's? Which probably was, like, a 250, 300 capacity, if I think about it. But at that time, that was pretty big. Yeah. Yeah, Screeching Weasel was a big one there. There was a band called Sludgeworth, who I was really into a lot of people were into that uh dan vapids one of his early bands and then uh green day came through and played mcgregor's i want to say in like 93 92 or 93 and that was a big one for us and i think we gave billy joe like one of our seven inches of tapes and like he ended up liking the band, and that had a big impact on our career too. So that was kind of cool. What 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 happened with that? Did he uh, did he pass it off to somebody or tell someone else? So yeah, this was like '92. Obviously, is like well before they were the massive juggernaut that they became. You know, they were just kind of a growing punk band. But he became a fan, and it was around. We played with them again in 1994 like right before right when dookie was coming out they played chicago at a venue called the vic and we played on that show and billy had had turned on the green day's management team to the popes and so those guys came to see us play and they were they were interested and then once word got out that green day's management was interested then that's when a lot of the bigger labels kind of started to, to come sniffing around. So I, you know, cause Green Days, this band's blowing up and their managers are going to see this smoking Pope's band. So, you know, all the labels got to hop on that. And, you know, I, I feel like that's a huge 
part of how we ended up getting a major label deal. That's huge. Just giving a guy a seven inch at a show. So it's pretty cool. Which think about it now, if it, that would have been a link, that would have been uh, something that wasn't tangible or held. And yes, there are catalogs and playlists and, and iTunes, uh, you know, your iTunes catalog that you have. But at that moment, I mean, if that was a link or if that was a text message, it could have, it didn't have any, it didn't have any weight to it. Uh, and I think that's such a beautiful thing that I, I just, I don't know if that's, it's, it, it's happening. There's, it's probably happening faster. Maybe you would have gotten signed faster. You would have been signed the next week or something or the next morning. Uh, but yeah. to have that <laughs> physical piece, um, I find really special. Yeah. I'm assuming it's probably, a, we probably gave them a seven inch and a tape cause they were on tour. So we probably gave them a tape to play in their van. So they probably popped the tape in listened to it and liked it and yeah and it's yeah now you would meet a guy and be like dude check out my band camp here's the link and then it's like all right well there's 500 of them cool i'm gonna yeah and then you put the wrong link in and then you're done you're back on facebook mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah because i think a lot of it it's because everybody's so accessible now that i think a lot of guys in bigger bands are less accessible because so many people can send the messages that they just tune it all out. Whereas back in those days, I mean, to get Billy Joe or Blake from Jawbreaker, your seven inch, like you'd have to go to their show and meet them. Yeah. And say and, hi, and, you know, have, have a physical exchange and have that, have that personal. You're not behind the email. It's like, hi, I am Mike. I'm in this band. Listen to my seven inch. Oh, okay. The guy's kind of cool. He was in front of our show singing along. All right, I'll check it out. Um, but it's in, in uh, uh, anonymous. So, yeah, that, I think that's a really beautiful thing that uh, for you guys to have that moment uh, and kind of look back at that and be like, wow, that was you know something that was, uh, uh, and especially to have them pop it in the van and listen to it. <laughs> that's like that's the hardest thing to get anybody to listen to anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In a way, I feel like in those days it was easier because people were being given less, you know, just because you don't have an email address and you don't have a Facebook where people can send a thousand messages. It's like, you've got to meet them in person. And the other part too, is listening to the whole thing. I remember I, I thought back, I had some records pop up on my iTunes and I, I'm like, how, why have I heard this? When have I heard this? Oh, it's track 11 on a CD that I bought <laughs> when I was in high school, but you listened to the whole thing. Cause you didn't have everything. <laughs> Well, and you paid for it too. You so it. you felt you were like, I got to listen to this fucking thing. <laughs> there are a lot of albums that if I had, you know, if it was now in the digital age, like a lot of albums that I end up loving, I wouldn't have given a chance to because it didn't immediately catch me. But if I pay like 10 to 20 bucks for it, I feel like I've got a little skin in the game. I got to try to try to make myself like this. Cause I just spent my, lawn mowing money on this CD. So I got to give it a shot. <laughs> I got to give it a shot. That's so true. <laughs> oh man. Wait a minute, dad. So you're saying that I mowed the lawn for two hours and you're giving me $5. Okay. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> the washed up evil podcast is sponsored by epitaph records and refused album freedom out now.
were there any other um you know records or uh, bands from that you know early time or even if you were just you know coming up in the 90s were there other ones that you sort of connected with um either from chicago or even ones that had come through you mentioned jawbreaker definitely we were definitely into in those days like a lot of just kind of the national punk like jawbreaker was was huge to all of us like the early green day some of the Discord record stuff, like Shudder to Think, we were all fans of, of that band, and like Jawbox and Fugazi and that stuff. When did you? you know, yeah, well, who 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 turned you on to some of those bands? Was it was it your same stuff? Was it uh, Thrasher Mag? Like who told you about Fugazi? Fugazi, I think I heard. It, I first heard them at a skate park. Um. It was probably in Rockford, the park we used to go to called Rotation Station. And that was in the real early 90s. Like, my brother and I were really hardcore into skateboarding. And they they had that Fugazi 13 songs disc, and it, they would just kind of play it on repeat. It seemed like every time we were there in that waiting room song, always, like, caught me. So I would, you know, go up to the dude at the desk and, like, who is this? a lot of it we just heard from kind of different skater buddies or what the skate parks are playing. A lot of it came down to what was in Thrasher magazine. In those days, like you couldn't hear something before you bought it either, really. So you're just kind of taking a shot in the dark. Yeah. I mean, it was, like, it was the, it was the logo. It was the cover. It was maybe another band's album. Thank yous. Like, Oh, they thank this band. Maybe I'll go check them out. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, you're really taking you're taking a leap of faith there with your allowance as a kid. <laughs> like, that is a lot of lawns. <laughs> like, I can't get another one for two weeks, so this better be good. <laughs> um, and then uh, I, one thing I just I didn't realize this until I was doing research. Um, uh, my favorite movie ever is Tommy Boy. Um, okay. I can recite everything from it. I don't know why. It's just my favorite movie ever. Um, and it was funny. Also today, I found out that the Chris Farley documentary is coming out uh, in late July, and I did not know that until uh, today too. So both those things happened. And then you guys were on the soundtrack. Uh, was there any story behind that, or anything how it happened, or it was just label guy put it on, and then that was it? Yeah, I think that one happened. I think that soundtrack was on Warner Brothers. And that was one of the labels that we were talking with before we signed to Capitol. There were a few labels interested, and I think that was kind of part of their pitch is like, it will get you on the soundtrack. I, could, I might be mistaking that, but I think kind of that's how that worked. Mm -hmm. Is So we ended up on the Tommy Boy soundtrack, and then the girl we were working with at, at Warner that we had talked to was, was really nice and she was really into the band. And I, I think she might've been the one that was behind us getting on the Angus soundtrack too. Cause I think that was also a Warner, mm -hmm. a Angus, Warner release. Angus was a good soundtrack. That was a great one. Okay. Great Weezer song on there. The Green Day song was really good. <clears throat> It's funny, some of those like soundtracks that we used to have like one or two songs, like, holy crap, you guys like put a single on here. <laughs> You could have like held back and put this on the next record. You threw it on the Conehead soundtrack or something, whatever you did. <laughs> uh, did any? Did you feel anything from it? Was it just 
at the time or even later, or am I the first person to mention it uh, in years? The Tommy Boy one is a little bit more random because of the song's placement in the movie, which is at the end of the credits. Mm -hmm. Wait, is it the second credits or the first credits? You know, there's always like that second one when it's got the, you know, second director. I think it might be like the very last song that you hear. Yep. I think it's the last of the last. (laughs) So that one, like a lot of people didn't even realize that we were on that soundtrack because the song's not, it's not in the movie anywhere. And it's not even at the beginning of the credits. It's like way at the tail end. And I don't think it was a really big selling soundtrack either. But Angus, though, that thing, I know a lot of people that got that. That was big, and the the Clueless soundtrack was really big, too. Wait, you were on the Clueless one, too? Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that. What, what now, was that placement in the movie, or was it uh, just the soundtrack? Um, It might have been during the credits. I can't even remember. But that's the one, I think that's the one that got the most recognition, because that was like a huge, that was a huge soundtrack. And if you look at, like, Smoking Pokes on Spotify... And look at like the play counts, like Need You Around is by far the most played song. And I think it's Need You Around being spun off the Clueless soundtrack. Hey, however you get it. Hey, yeah. I mean, if people are still listening to something that you did in 1994, in 2015, then that's pretty cool. Yeah. I don't care if it's on Clueless or or where it is. Yeah, that's great. you also you played drums on my my favorite uh, Alkaline Trio record um, from here to Infirmary. Um, was that a was that a fun time? Obviously, you know, it was a short time with the band, but I think more more specifically that era, like that moment, those time, especially for I don't want to get into emo because that's what the podcast is about. But like that time period was such a almost like a breaking point. What, what were you feeling, especially from the independent scene? Kind of, the, it was almost like bands were getting shot out of catapults again, and there was A and R guys swarming. Um, what, what are some of the thoughts from that time? Well, yeah, the experience with the trio was was pretty amazing because I, I joined the band right after they released "Maybe I'll Catch Fire." Mm-hmm. Well, like that record had come out maybe just a month or two before I joined. So I did all the tours for that album. And it was really cool to see how that band was growing. Cause like the first tour I did with them, they were drawing really well, but it was like a couple hundred people a night. Like sometimes you get three or 400, but you're really like 200 to 350 people a night on that tour, which felt great. But then like every time we would go out, it would be bigger. And I feel like the growth of that band was just really organic. Like it was a lot of just word of mouth and like people were into it. And I hadn't really been part of something that other than like the really early Pope's days in Chicago, that's how it worked. But like Alkaline Trio that was happening across the whole country. And, you know, by the time we made from here to infirmary and toured that one, we were playing, you know, a thousand capacity venues and selling out most of them. So it was pretty neat in that short period of time to be with a band that's going from 200 people a night to selling out a thousand capacity rooms like nationwide. Wow. And a lot of it was just, I mean, that was happening 
before Vagrant was really in, you know, pushing anything really hard, it was just a lot of it just purely natural, which is, is kind of phenomenal. And it's a really rare thing, I think, in music. I mean, that, have ki- a band just... that kind of band, oh, no, no, I was going to say that band was, I think, one of the, you, I mean, you already said it, the word of mouth. I mean, it was, have you seen Alkaline Trio? You haven't seen them live? You got to go. That was what the sentiment was at that time. Uh, um, and I think you're right. It is it is very rare. And for you to be experiencing that, and yeah, you're right, from 200 cap to 1,000 cap and you know selling merch and going crazy, it just, the, uh, it's a, it, it, it almost, it, I, I wasn't experiencing it. I mean, I, would, I saw the shows, but uh, being there in that, was it, uh, did it just feel everything went by really quickly? Or was it everyone sort of holding on to their hats as, uh, everything was happening there was definitely like it was going fast and like we just we toured a a ton and like the band was growing really quickly and so that's when at the time when you know when i joined the band they didn't have a manager we had a booking agent who was just one of their friends and we had heather would go on the road with us to sell merch and like that was our crew and then as it's just crazy to see, like, as you get much bigger, it becomes more of a business just because it has to, because you're like this crazy revenue generating machine at that point. And so I, I think everybody was a little bit overwhelmed at like the band kind of turning more into a, a business, you know, cause then there are a lot of decisions to be made. You've got, bigger booking agents offering you deals. You got record labels to negotiate deals with. You've got, you know, just so many more decisions than just like three guys in a merch girl getting in a van and going playing shows. Yeah. It seemed like, I mean, the scene was getting bigger. Those bands were getting picked up. Vagrant was getting bigger. Um, yeah. I mean, everything Vagrant touched pretty much was just like golden. Yeah. I mean, you know, they like, Saves the day got huge. Get up kids got huge. Dashboard confessional got huge. So it was just like a really crazy time, and all this stuff was like blowing up out of nowhere. Yeah. What did you think of that era? I mean, I'm sure you were familiar with some of the late '90s emo bands, if it was like Promise Ring or um, you know any. But what was sort of the or even the, some of the fun uh, polyvinyl? What were you thinking as it sort of turned? It sort of uh, I call it post bleed American. Um, what were some of the, <laughs> what were some of the, your thoughts as you were kind of seeing those bands or that, that, that happen? A lot of it happened so fast that you don't even realize what's happening at the time. And it, so it's, it's kind of crazy in that way. Like it's funny that you reference post bleed American because the smoking popes, we did a tour in like 95, where the smoking posts are headlining the figs were main support. And Jimmy eat world was the first out of three bands on the package. Wow. And that, I mean, 95 was like their (laughs) punk slash, like, I mean, they were sort of figuring out static. Yep. Yeah. I think that had just come out and they were on Capitol records too at the time. And we knew the guy, there was a, guy named Wes Kidd who was in the Chicago band Triple Fast Action had produced the Jimmy Eat World record 
so we had that connection, but it's just funny to see like just a handful of years later, like they're one of the biggest rock bands in the world. Yeah. And it's like, you don't even really see it happening. And then you're like, Oh wow. Like, it's just kind of like all of a sudden kind of deal. I guess it would be like the kids that are into the dubstep now, like you wake up one day and there's popular country songs with dubstep breakdowns in the middle of them. Yeah. And like, what happened? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, especially, I mean, I remember the, I mean, those, those tours are, you know, post bleed American. It just, it was unbelievable to, to see the bands being signed, the, the money being thrown around. Um, and I get it that that happens when you, there's something hot, you kind of go crazy, but the, the popularity of it was very, very surprising to me of something that I thought was catchy and, you know, cool, but I thought it was too, you know, I, I thought it was too punk rock for it, but obviously not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy to think like, and I was a, I was a promising fan too back in the day. And we, the Pope's played a number of shows with those guys in Chicago and Milwaukee. Uh, but yeah, it was really weird to see a lot of those bands actually get huge. And in the, in the nineties, it was more the pop punk thing more than the, than what they were dubbing emo. Like, you know, the Pope's got a massive record deal and jawbreaker got a massive record deal. But in the nineties, it was interesting because more often than not, those records were uh, like financial disappointments mm -hmm. outside of like Green Day and Rancid and The Offspring. Like nobody else really took off the way that people thought they would. And then it's like the late 90s, early 2000s. It seemed like a lot of those, it was like those late 90s, early 90s bands were kind of almost a little ahead of the curve a little bit. Like people weren't ready to take on more than just green day. Yeah, no, they definitely were ahead. Um, I, th I always feel like there's those bands that, you know, were awesome and they should have gotten big, but they were always the opener or they're always like second. Uh, or, uh, and that's just, that's just how it is. And there's a band that watches them and is like, well, I can make that hookier. I think I yeah. can add that breakdown at the right time. And then bang off they go. Um, yeah, because even like the Promise Ring is one like they got fairly big nationally, but not compared to that next wave of bands. And same with Jawbreaker, same with the Popes, and like that next wave of bands that all got huge. These bands, like ninety percent of those bands, would cite Jawbreaker as an influence. Mm -hmm. Most bands but, have mentioned Jawbreaker and Fugazi. That is, if if there could be like a swear jar for those two bands, I would be rich with this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's like it never worked out that Jawbreaker was massively huge, but they inspired a whole ton of bands that ended up being massive. And a lot of times, that's how it works out. Yeah, I mean, if you go back to the '80s, like that's pretty much the replacements, mm -hmm. like every band that was like somewhat kind of punky, but like pop punk rock band, like 90% of them would cite the replacements as an influence and replacements got big, but not massive. Yeah. So it's, it's like the jawbreaker was like the nineties version of the replacements kind of in that, in that regard. Yeah. And, and it, yes, it will happen again and again, but, uh, it was just uh, you. You feel for the bands that you're like those should they should have gotten bigger. Damn it! 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I want to talk about the the um, the new stuff you're doing with the bigger empty um, and uh, sort of you know used you know it started sort of as a solo thing um, for you okay. and then sort of uh, went was was bigger and it's again you're kind of doing it out of love this is uh, obviously this is fun and then you get to kind of be um, uh, doing different uh, different things with this band, so I'd love to kind of hear um, the from the okay. I'm going to do this just for me, and then you're going to now you now you have more people with you. Yeah, so it started. I mean, I've been releasing solo stuff off and on since like 2001. I released a record called 64 Hours, and most of the solo stuff I would play all of the instruments, and I didn't really do many shows. I did like a couple of like little tours here and there in the early 2000s. But around 2006, I started playing with Jim, Kevin, and Ruben, who are in the Bigger Empty with me. And they were in a Chicago band called Sketch Middle Forever. And they never really, they they didn't really get very big and never got much attention, but they're really good players. They're a really good band. And those three have been playing together since they were like 12 years old or something. So I started playing with them sort of as my backup band for my solo shows in about 2006. And we weren't super active. Like I'd, we'd play a few shows and then kind of go dormant for a year or two and then go play a few more. But as time went on and I, I started, uh, Ruben, the bass player, he owns a studio called Chicago Sound Lab, like near Chicago here. And I started making a record it was it was going to be another solo record but as i was rehearsing more with with the guys like they were adding quite a bit to the songs and like we're playing them live and it was clear that like this isn't a solo project like these guys are adding it sounds like a band so i thought i I didn't really want to carry on as having it be a solo thing anymore because there are three other guys that are having as much impact on the songs as, as I was having. So that's kind of how that came about. We just decided like, let's just make this a band because that's what it feels like. Rad. What's been the, what's been fun about it? What, what have you guys, uh, what do you have going on up, up coming here? So we've got an EP that's officially coming out on August 8th on artistic integrity records. Uh, that's, uh, Dan Wallach, who he put out the vinyl version of my split with Dan Andreano. Nice. Uh, so he's going to put, we're doing just like a limited CD. We're pressing a hundred CDs and Dan's going to hand number them. So that'll be out on August 8th. And we're playing a release show this Saturday, the 25th at Subterranean, which happens to be with Spittlefield. They're doing a 10 year anniversary show of one of their early records. Cool. So that'll be a really cool show. It's another band you could get on Washed Up Emo, too. I think someone's mentioned them to me, and I never got into them fully. I mean, I knew them, played them, but didn't get into them. So, yeah, I think uh, they would definitely fit the bill. If they're if they're doing a 10-year reunion, it fits the timeline. <laughs> yeah. they. I don't know how big they got nationally, but in, in Illinois, they kind of – came out of nowhere and just like exploded really big here for a while. And then kind of, it seemed like as quickly as they came and they were done. Um, so it's kind of cool that they're, 
I think they've got a, like a vinyl reissue of their record coming out that day. So it should be a fun show. And so, considering it's a 10 year anniversary of a record, it probably fit our demographic of old people. <laughs> You're being very diplomatic. I like that. <laughs> like you didn't talk shit on the mid two thousands. You were very diplomatic about that. You're so you're, you're, you're mentioning that we're old, but you're not saying it. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing is, is the 10 year reunion people are probably going to be a little young for my demographic because yes. I'm more in the tw- 25 year reunion yeah. kind of category. Yeah. I'm in the, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm in the, uh, 20, I'm in the, I'm in the 15 to 20 range. I'm not in the 10. The 10's like, Oh, wait a minute. That was then that's when, see, I still think 2000 was yesterday. Um, yeah, me too. Or like 99 is like, yeah, it was just like six months ago. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I had a, I had my first phone in 2000. That was like that. That's how I remember it. I'm like, oh yeah, I had a phone, and I remember getting mad when people texted me because uh, it cost like 25 cents or something. Um, yeah, and you got to use T9 Word to like try to text back. It's a pain in the ass. Oh, I didn't text back. I called and said, "Stop texting me. You're charging me 25 cents." <laughs> I make I make I make no money, and I live in New York City. Please stop. <laughs> uh. Well, that's great that you're still you're still playing. You've got you know the obviously the, the popes. Whenever uh, you guys feel good about it, and then having like this other outlet, um, it must be a great balance to life itself. Because um, obviously, um, music plays a part in so much of um, the lives of people that I speak to. But again, to you know to have those two outlets, uh, in addition to it, might it, it must be a great balance to. Uh, uh, f- f- sorry, I can't get the word out. Family. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's it's pretty awesome and I went I went like a really good period of years there kind of in the middle where I didn't do anything musically and I'm a lot happier now that I'm doing things musically again. It doesn't have to be you know, I'm probably not going to be hitting the road for three month tours anytime soon. But I, it doesn't have to be that way either and you don't have to make a living at it to have fun doing it. <clears throat> And, you know, it doesn't matter if we play shows, like we'll play shows where there's 10 people there, we'll play shows where there's 400 people and it doesn't make a whole lot of difference because we're just doing it because we love to do it. And that's when the, that's when the music comes through right. And that's when the, you can feel the connection on stage. Um, and I'm sure you've seen bands or felt bands that you're like, wow, they could, they could, they cannot wait to get done. <laughs> they cannot wait to finish. <laughs> yeah. And that can happen, you know, when you're in the midst of, like a six month stretch where you've been home for a total of five or six days and you're doing it every day because that's what you do. That's what you have to do. Like, I know you love it, but I mean, it's at a certain point, it's, I would equate it to like major league baseball players who play 116, 162 games a year plus spring training. Like they probably play certain games where they're like, man, my ankle hurts. My elbow hurts. I kind of just want to sleep today, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's a, a, a extra innings night game. They have to fly to California, and it's a day game or something. Like, they're probably mm-hmm. not. And then you got fans yelling, and I'm like, you know what? I don't think I'd want to play. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they make millions of dollars. Yes, they, they shouldn't be complaining. But the analogy is right. I mean, you're doing this thing continuously, and it's, you can't do 100 every day or 100% every day. Um if you did, you'd burn yourself out. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times you're 
you don't feel what, like you're you're riding in a van together with a bunch of other dudes who, you know, you're eating crappy food, you're driving 300 miles a day. So sometimes you just, you don't feel good. So you're not going to be as kick-ass as you should be, which is kind of the fun thing about it now. Like we play, like the bigger empty plays like every couple months. So when we play, it's like, it's because we want to do it and it's, it's fun. It's almost like you have a, you have a big circle on the calendar. You're like, we're going to play mm-hmm. next Saturday. Remember, that's what you yeah. used to, that's what it used to be. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like yeah, the, it's, it's sort of like it's the like term. being 16 again. Yeah. Yeah. I always say it's uh, the two ages you're most happy is eight and 80 um, mm-hmm. because you can shit in your pants and it doesn't matter. Um, like those are that, that's it. Like, so you're right. You're 16. You got it circled on the calendar. You wake every, wake up every morning thinking it's the next, you know, you, you, you can't wait. Um, so I think that's, I think that's great for you guys to be able to have that. Yeah, because now it's more like a release rather than something that you've got to do. Because, like, I've had a crappy week at work so far this week, and I'm just looking forward to Saturday because we're playing a rock show. (laughs) So I can rock out the crappiness of the day job. (laughs) You're like, fuck Dave in accounting, you know, as you're, like, playing. (laughs) (laughs) You should have heard me sobbing. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, this is why you know. That's why I'm not rocking anymore. And why I'm talking to wash up emo because I'm washed up. <laughs> no one else to talk to. But we won't get into that now. Let's take it from the Hello, Washed Up Emo fans. Thank you for listening to this podcast over the last nine plus years. Or if it's your first time, welcome. It has flown by and I appreciate each and every one of you for listening. And for this current episode you're about to hear, I do have a favor of you. I have some books out right now called Anthology of Emo. And Volume 2 was released last fall. I really think you'll dig it if you haven't heard of them. It features guests from the podcast, including Jim Atkins from Jimmy World, Chris Conley from Saves the Day, Travis Shettle from Piebald, and John Bunch from Sensefield. Also, reprinted volume one so you can order both. Check out the DIY publishing at anthologyofemo.com.